Please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 15. Tonight we will study the entire chapter, verses 1 to 19. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces, nation was crushed by nation, and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the earth, over the oath. For they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all, all around. Even Maaka, his mother, King Asa removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. The grass withers, the flowers fall. And the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how the chronicler, writing long after these events had taken place, preached them as a sermon for his generation. And they, they answered, they were faithful. You bless them. Well, now, Lord, it is our generation to whom the word of God comes. And this is our family history. This is our covenant heritage that we would seek you, knowing that you will find us if we seek you with all our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The phrase, do not rest on your laurels, stems from the practice of the ancient Greeks to 
to crown victors with laurel wreaths. Uh, today, a laureate is a person who's been crowned. We speak of a Nobel laureate. That's someone who has received the Nobel Prize. Many countries have a poet laureate, the, the crowned poet of their nation. Now, to rest on your laurels is to be satisfied with past achievements and to cease striving for new attainments. For example, a scholar who's given an advanced degree is warned not to rest on your laurels, meaning they should continue to contribute to their field in scholarship. Well, the Bible contains similar warnings for God's servants not to rest on spiritual attainments, but to press on for more. And an example is given in this chapter, Second Chronicles 15. It occurs right after Asa had gained a great victory over this mass force, a million men who'd come from Cush, the land of the south, in service to Egypt. And so the Lord defended him. Actually, faced with that dire threat, Asa prays one of the great prayers of the Old Testament in chapter 14, 11. And the Lord utterly destroys the enemy. And here's where our chapter divisions don't serve us well, because this is a continued narrative. It's right after this. It's on the way back from this victory. Fresh laurels having been set on his reputation. That Asa is approached by a messenger from God who reminds him that his labors were not yet finished. The message of Azariah, the son of Oded, conveyed hope to Asa, but also urged him to courage for further courage to to trust the Lord and to press on for further reward. Asa responds positively, and he gathers in this chapter his people for a great covenant renewal, the result of which was decades of peace and blessing. Well, the bearer of God's message to Asa was Azariah, the son of Oded. Now, he's one of many figures in the Old Testament who show up for one time. They must have had very interesting lives, but only once did they make it in the Bible. That's not bad, actually. And we're told in verse 1 that the Spirit of God came upon him. And so like all prophetic words, it is God's Spirit who's speaking through him. And we'll notice that when God's Spirit is speaking, it's not novelty, it's not innovation. But what is given here is a reminder of the heart of the gospel message that is found throughout the Scriptures. Now, the way he organizes his message has three parts. He has a principle restated, an example as an illustration, and an exhortation that is compelling. A principle restated, an illustrative example, and a compelling exhortation. That's what we have at the beginning of this passage, the message of Azariah. Now, the principle he restates is this, that faith in the Lord results in the blessing of salvation. That's what his message is. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you were with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. You see, fresh from the laurels of his victories in the south, he needed to remember that faith continued to be necessary for future blessings. Faith's not really something you do in the past and you gain your crown. It's something that carries on throughout our life. And the teaching, of course, had already been made clear. He's repeating the message found in Deuteronomy 4, verse 29, which says, You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. So this is not a new message. It's the heart of the covenant good news. 
Now, according to the New Testament, those who seek after the Lord actually have already received their chief blessing. Because we're instructed in the New Testament that no one can seek after the Lord until he or she has already been born again. It's only the regenerate heart that seeks after the Lord. Paul in Romans 3.11 speaks of the unregenerate and said, no one seeks after God. Jesus said in John 3 verse 3 that unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God, much less seek it. And Jesus spoke of his own message as one of seeking sinners to be saved. That great statement of Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. And therefore, if we are seeking after the Lord, that means we have been born again. We have been regenerated. In fact, the first sign of regeneration is that we seek after the Lord. And the result is that we find him and we enter a relationship filled with blessings. At the same time, the message of Azariah prevents, it does present a vital truth to those who are not believers. Unbelievers sometimes will say, well, I, I tried to seek the Lord and I was not, he did not, I did not find him. Well, that's utterly refuted by what the prophet says. He says that if you seek him, you will find him. You will gain forgiveness. You will have eternal life. Now, it's true that none can seek the Lord because of total depravity until they are born again by his grace. But all may seek him. And all are condemned for their sin if they do not. The the principle expressed here by Azariah then may be taken as a divine promise. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you say, I have not found God, the Bible would say you have not sought him. You may have sought some other form of God, an idol of your choosing. But if you seek him, you will find him. In fact, you already have. Now, as is found throughout the Bible, the offer of salvation through faith is joined to a message of judgment on unbelief. Go back to verse 2. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now, Azariah is not here threatening genuine believers with God judging them if they ever slip up. This is the kind of verse that causes people, particularly when they don't understand the doctrines of grace, to lose some sleep. Oh, no, if I forsake him, he'll forsake me. And we think of little ways in which we think we've forsaken the Lord and, and in a sense, have. But what he's speaking of here is those who deliberately turn their back on the Lord in a rebellious embrace of unbelief. This is apostasy. This is those who harden their hearts. It's what Jesus warned about when he said, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 3.18. And so this is the principle of a saving relationship through faith by God's grace that Azariah recalls to the mind of Asa. And he's going to illustrate it in an interesting way with an example that almost certainly is drawn from the book of Judges. Look at verses 3 and 4. For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law, but when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. Now, this is, the point shows that his message is an encouragement about God's grace. That's his whole point, that he will receive sinners, whoever you are, whatever you've done. If you'll confess your sin, if you'll repent, if you'll call upon his name in faith, he will save you. 
But it does rest upon the background of God's judgment for sin, which is designed to awaken us to our saving need. Now, the situation of judges, to which he's, I think, certainly referring, is one that is repeated in various ways throughout the Old Testament. And it involves a cycle in which, here's how it starts. First, God's people are blessed by his grace, and they enjoy peace and many bounties along the way. But then their success lulls them into a laxity that turns to unbelief and idolatry. Uh, For instance, very astonishing to us, we read in Judges chapter 2 that the very generation that followed Joshua, now Joshua was maybe the high water marker of the Old Testament. That's bad when it's early in the book. That means it's essentially downhill from there. But Joshua, these are the the Israelites who, who conquered in the name of the Lord. The problem was that the generation that followed was excited by the newfound prosperity. They wanted to enjoy the benefits of worldly pleasure, and they lost interest in their covenant heritage. Now, the first stage of that was a failure to teach their children about God and his salvation. Judges 2.10 has those ominous words, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. God blessed them, and so they got caught up in the blessings. They forgot about the Lord. Their children didn't even know the gospel. That's what's being said here. Well, that leads to a second stage, which is a collapse then into the evil of worldly idolatry. Well, that's only natural when the people no longer know about God's grace. Judges 2.11 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, the third stage of this collapse is God's judgment on his people. First, they're caught up in the world. They lose interest in him. They don't teach it to their children. They don't know God anymore. So they turn to unbelief and idolatry. And so God visits them with judgment. That is the third stage that is seen in the book of Judges. Now, it's this situation then of spiritual collapse, which was repeated all through Judges. Every There's just generations of this happening in one stage of this cycle after another. That's what he mentions in verses 5 to 6. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. Now, by the way, this same scenario had happened in the generations prior to the writing of Chronicles in the ancestors of the people to whom he's writing. Remember, this is a 5th century document, early on in the early 475 BC, that's early 5th century. These are the Jews who were returning by God's grace for Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And so this is what happened in Judges, but it happened nearer than that. It happened to their own forefathers. That's what he said. And of course, it occurs today when churches or Christian families who have benefited from a great spiritual heritage become enamored of the world and they lose interest in God. They forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the result is, in so many cases, that even within a few short years, their blessings are turned into ashes. In each case, whether it's a nation a a church denomination or a Christian individual or family, the anarchy 
that comes upon them results from the spiritual anarchy of their rebellion against the Lord. Well, the chronicler highlights the catastrophe, as he puts it in verse 3. Here's a special catastrophe, that backslidden Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. Verse 3. You see, they'd made themselves pagans. They'd made themselves aliens to God's covenants. They'd forgotten their need to be taught the gospel. They, they forgot that they needed the blood of Jesus to forgive them of their sins. And, and then they strayed from the only way of life, which is the way of God's word. Think of Paul in Ephesians 2.12. And this, these are the cuff. By the way, this, this could happen to us. In fact, if you, if you draw the circle very wide at all, it is happening to us, our nation. So many denominations, they are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. A Christian people reduced to paganism. Now, Azariah is giving this message not to harangue Asa about you know their, their sordid past, but what he's leading to is the fourth stage that's revealed in Judges. Let me quickly rehearse it again. They, they get caught up. God blesses them, but they get caught up in worldly things. They don't teach about God anymore. And so they fall into idolatry and judgment. So God judges them in these terrible ways. But there's a fourth stage. It's, it's given in verse 4 of our passage. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by him. See, here's the good. He's encouraging Asa, there's always grace. If we just turn to the Lord, it's the good news. This is the God of salvation, of mercy. He delights in showing mercy. And if you just, no matter where you are, I say this to you, no matter what state you're in, what sin you're guilty of, whatever condition of your heart, if you feel the need of God and you call upon him through Jesus Christ and the blood of his cross, he will be there for you. You will be found. You will be saved. And the chroniclers, Azariah, this prophet, is showing that, by the way, the point of those punishments was not God being vindictive, but he was trying to wake them up to their spiritual need, to come back for forgiveness, to renew their covenant fidelity, to receive the blessings that he is eagerly willing to grant. And see, this is the gospel principle first announced through Moses and repeated by later prophets in times when the people had strayed. Listen to how Isaiah in the 8th century gives the same fundamental message. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6-7. Oh, seek the Lord and he will, you will find him. Here's how Paul puts it in the New Testament, Romans 10, 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why shouldn't that be you if you are not saved? Well, Azariah's reaffirmation of this great gospel message was fulfilled, of course, when God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and this message, which is ultimately leading to Jesus, finds a, an exhortation. First there's a principle, then there's an illustration of the principle, the book of Judges. But here's the exhortation for Asa, verse 7. But you take courage. 
Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. You see, he must understand how it works, the, the, the biblical pattern of sin, judgment, repentance, restoration. And he, therefore, was to vigorously pursue the promoting of the knowledge of this gospel, the knowledge of God, that there would be an awareness of repentance of sin and renunciation of the idols so that the blessings of God would remain. Now, in his case, what Azariah is calling for is an ongoing reformation that is directed particularly against the continuation of idolatry in the nation. Andrew Stewart puts it this way, Asa had been faithful as king over Judah, but there was still work of reformation to be done. Others before him had not been faithful, and as long as the land was filled with idols, the Lord's blessing could not be expected. You see, Asa should not think that this great military victory that he had won, by the way, he hadn't really won it. It was a great prayer. We honor that. It was his faith, but God had done it. But you see, that victory was not enough to secure the blessings of peace in the years to come. He must reform. He must reform. If he didn't diligently apply himself to ongoing present obedience and ongoing repentance, well, then nothing was going to stop his people and the succeeding generations from experiencing the calamitous effects that always occurs given the gravitational power of sin in our world if we are not seeking the Lord and repenting in reformation. The Apostle Peter gave a very similar charge to his readers just before he died. These are familiar words, I hope, to us. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Second Peter 1, 5 to 7, personal reformation and renewal. You see, he says we must root out the vestiges of idolatry and sin. We must lay hold of God's grace for this inward renewal, Peter says, to keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful. He says this is how you confirm your calling and election and have assurance of salvation, Second Peter 1, 8 and 10. We say, well, how long must a king like Asa or a Christian like me engage in constant spiritual renewal, reformation? Well, Peter says it goes on until life ends and eternity begins. It is in this way that there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He must commit with courage and faith to the ongoing work of reformation and renewal. Now, Azariah's mission to King Asa reminds us of what is the point of the preaching of God's word. What is the function of the delivery of God's messages from the scriptures today? Today, God does not send prophets. The word of God's complete. He has preachers do a similar thing, proclaim the message. That's what Azariah did. He preached a sermon, a Levitical sermon, they call it, out from, from that Moses had given, that other prophets would give in years to come. Well, what is the purpose of this office, of this work? Well, if we see the example of Azariah, it's not to draw in large crowds with folksy stories or emotional appeals but rather to proclaim the central Bible truth with the aim of converting sinners and then furthering the, the reform of those who already believe. That is the function of the ministry of God's word. 
You see, we live in a world where the presence of sinful temptation and spiritual decline is not going away until Jesus comes back. In every age of this present world, there will always be this gravitational effect of sin and idolatry, temptation and spiritual decline. And so the need for biblical teaching and exhortation will not end until Jesus returns. Now, it was with this aim that the chronicler, by the way, has recorded all this. Because he's not, he's not the one giving the message, he's recording it, and he's using this as a sermon to his generation in the 5th century B.C. Richard Pratt writes, the prophetic word to Asa was to be an encouragement to the post-exilic readers to move forward in their Reformation efforts. Initial successes were not sufficient. They had to continue in the way of fidelity as they hoped for more blessings from God. Now, it's often argued today that faithful biblical preaching combined with exhortations to faith and the repentance of sin, that that kind of thing doesn't connect with actual people. We're always told, every, every, by the way, it's every generation that is told it used to work, but it doesn't work today. And it doesn't actually connect with some, with people, but, but Asa reminds us, oh, it does when God is the one who speaks through his servant. And when the Holy Spirit enters in to give conviction to the message that's given. Because in the case of Asa, and he is not a different kind of person than you are in the pews. He's a flesh and blood man in the very situation you are. He responds. Why? Because God was working by his grace. That's what makes ministry exciting. Because as as Jesus said to Paul when he was pretty much fed up with the depraved city of Corinth, Jesus appeared to him and said, don't give up. I have many people in this place. And it's true of those who are not called to salvation are not going to respond to God's word. The goats are not going to hear the shepherd's voice, but the sheep are. And Asa reminds us of this, that the preaching of God's word accomplishes the work that God gave it. What does he say in Isaiah 55? It shall not go forth in vain. The word that goes out from my mouth, it will accomplish the purpose I have given it. Now, Asa's response then to this one-time prophet gives an example. Look at verse 8. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that had taken, he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. You see that we're shown here the power of the word of God. The preached word is living and active. As Hebrews 4.12 says, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. And particularly when it's accompanied by prayer, there is no more effective resource that we have today for things like raising our children with godly character, for things like learning how to lead a godly, blessed marriage, uh, for how to live as a church, how to be used by God to convert sinners and reform believers. There is no resource like the word of God, faithfully proclaimed. Is he seeing the effect of Azariah's ministry, he shows up out of the blue to this conqueror with laurels on his brows, and he has the temerity to preach the word of the Lord, but the spirit of the Lord comes, and God's will is done. It makes us want to follow Paul's philosophy of ministry. You'll find Paul's philosophy of ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, how often I think of it. 
He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would, con- we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Well, Asa awakens in this way from the danger of resting on his laurels. And he, we read here that he energetically pursues the further work of reformation. And primarily, he scours the land of idols. They represented the detestable false gods of the pagan nations. And they had this deplorable, destructive sexual immorality. And he banished them from the land, verse 8. Moreover, in a positive way, he turns to the temple which Solomon had made and he takes a renewed interest in its upkeep and provision. Those go together. On the one hand, we turn away from the world and its idols, but then we want an interest in the ministry of the gospel. That's what he does. Verse 8, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in the front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. Now, it was about 60 years now since Solomon had consecrated the temple, and its continued use meant it needed repair. And so Asa here reminds me of faithful deacons who keep up the physical upkeep of church buildings. Asa's servants likewise showed devotion to the Lord by investing in the place where the gospel was proclaimed. Now, undoubtedly, he also took care for the actual ministry, for the people who would perform the ministry. We're told he took care of the regular sacrifices of the temple, which, of course, looked forward in faith to Jesus. He made arrangements for the preaching of God's word. These are the things the church budget are for, by the way. Zealous Christians should follow that example today. One thing we should do is we should erect and tend to a family altar. In regular family worship, we should make sure that children in our home should be taught God's word and the sounds of God's praises would be heard in our home. Churches, of course, must provide for the preaching of God's word and supporting the ministries of evangelism and prayer. Well, Asa has been awakened in this way by the message of the prophet, and he shows so much zeal that he even takes on the venerable queen mother who was misusing her privileged position by promoting the filth of idolatry. Now, you think about that. What about the queen mother? You talk about somebody who's going to be politically you know, ensconced. But he's, we read this, even Maaka, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. So he's not backing off. He takes her Asherah pool, crushes it, grinds it down, goes down to the bottom of the hill, and pours the ashes into the Kidron brook. Now, she actually is the wife of his uh, grandfather, Rehoboam. She's his grandmother, but she's a mother figure. That's what's being said here. And she would have had a very influential case, uh, position as figurehead and counselor. But you see, if we're going to have the reformation of the church, then we cannot have unbelievers and ungodly people in positions of influence. That's what he's saying. He he could not permit that if he was going to be a reformer king. And I think we can imagine him. I would hope he did. I'm sure he did. He prayed maybe for quite a while before taking this on. And he would have prayed, I certainly hope, for God to turn her heart. Surely he would have appealed to her with the word of God. And called her the way that Azariah had called, would he use the same words? Seek the Lord. You're going to find him. He's the God of all grace. But you see, just as churches today must take decisive, though 
painful step to remove the unfaithful from positions of leadership. Zealous Asa took a firm stand for the Lord and against the idols. If you don't think he paid a personal and political price for doing this, then you have no experience in the church or any other organization. But he had the zeal to do it. What an example he sets for us. And the results then are decisive for the generation under his charge. We see it in verse 7. It brings a spiritual bounty first in his own life. The heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. Now, my friends, that's an accolade worth more than all the laurel honors the world can bestow. More than we can ever bless our followers through earthly riches or earthly privileges. The heritage of a heart that seeks the Lord is the most potent way to bring spiritual blessing. Secondly, he ensured the provision of the ministry of the Lord's temple by bringing into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver, gold, and vessels. Verse 18, he takes care for the provision of the church. Now you go, where did he get the money? Remember, just two generations earlier. All that gold that Solomon had amassed, remember he made them into shields, those beautiful golden shields, and as soon as Rehoboam starts sinning, God sends Shishak up from Egypt, and he takes all the gold, poof, it's gone. Well, where does it come back from? Well, see, God can restore these things. It's not hard. The issue is never money. The issue is spirituality. And so he gets it from the invasion that he defeated. God said, well, I need to bless uh, uh Asa, so let me send another army, and this time I'll defeat them, and they'll bring the treasures back. (laughs) Essentially, that's what happens, and it's the spoil of his plunder over these victories that he uses to support the church. The Lord can handle these things. He provides the resources needed for his people. Now, thirdly, then, we have blessing. There was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa, verse 19. See, here's the legacy of true reformation based on God's word that seeks after the Lord in renewed faith. We get things like true hearts, divine provision, and the bounty of heavenly peace. How richly rewarded was Asa and all his people because they responded to God's word and they were willing to obey. You see, we have this folly within us that says, oh, if I obey, I'm going to lose out. Is this losing out? No, no, respond to God's word. And let me say, let me do the work of reformation in my life. In, in, in that which God has placed under my care, how richly we are rewarded. Well, not only was Asa zealous to carry on the work of reforming the nation, he was wise enough to know that the real work would be in the hearts of the people. That's where the real work would be done. And we see this finally in the new covenant that he makes with his people. He wants to renew the people in their covenant with the Lord. And so verses 9 and 10, he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of the reign of Asa. Well, like a true shepherd king of the house of David, he gathers the flock of God into his care, including, isn't it wonderful? We we see this at many times in Chronicles. Many people from those apostate tribes start coming back. Start coming back when they see the power of God's grace. They saw the Lord his God was with him. 
And it's to this end of drawing the repentant back to God that he employs his prestige. Now, scholars point out that since it's the third month, it's his 15th year, but the important thing, it's the third month, it's almost certainly the Feast of Weeks. It's the Feast of Pentecost. It's in the midsummer, and that's the feast. This is one of the occasions that God himself had ordained for the gathering of the people before his temple. And so uh, Asa gathers them on that occasion. And once there, he offers the prescribed sacrifices, both for the atonement of sin and thanksgiving for God's blessing. 700 oxen in this case, 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart, with all their soul. You see, here's the climax of Asa's reformation. It's taking place in the hearts of his people as they're stirred to seek the Lord together. Now, this new covenant that he made should not be confused with the divine covenants that God makes with his people for salvation. This is not a way of salvation between man and God. This is a mutual compact. This is a horizontal covenant. This is Asa saying with the people, let's make a covenant among ourselves. So this is not something different or additional to God's covenant of grace. Well, this is a mutual compact for their shared commitment in fidelity to the Lord. Martin Selman comments, the people's covenant forms the climax of the Reformation, enabling them to renew their commitment to God. You know, something similar takes place each Lord's Day as we gather together. We're renewing our covenant, aiming to seek together the Lord for his glory and his blessing. Now, I want to be brief in summarizing the results of this national covenant with just three points. The first it is a mutual commitment to accountability spiritually. They're committing together to seek after the Lord. Verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their hearts, with all their souls. Now, I think we especially follow their example when we take vows of church membership making the same pledge that we will trust and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Many people say we don't, they don't believe in church membership. No, but all through the Bible, it's covenant relationships. And this will be a, when we have a church, that's people who've already covenanted together to do this, not, not to make a name for ourselves in the world. That's not what we covenant for. It's to seek the Lord. It's to raise our children in the Lord. It's to shine a light of Jesus and that we, God would have praise that he deserves in our midst. That's what we covenant for. And when a Christian joins the church, they're entering into that covenant commitment. Now, in this case, there are, you may have noticed, dire sanctions against those who would turn away from the Lord. Verse 13, that, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. Now, there are some commentators who at this point say, you know, he's getting out of control. This is zeal running amok, but he's merely reading the Bible as it stands in his times. This is part of the Mosaic Covenant, which was a national covenant for Israel. And Deuteronomy 17, 2 to 7 calls for this. Exodus 22, 20 calls for this. Richard Pratt observes that the motivation behind this law was to rid Israel of evildoers who would lead others from fidelity to the covenant. Now, its analogy today is found in the sanction of excommunication, by which faithful churches sadly but willingly exclude members who renounce, unrenounce, unrepentedly renounce Christ by their words or their deeds. I actually once was 
I was speaking at a church gathering about an excommunication and I accidentally said, we have executed the person. We don't execute people. And we don't like to excommunicate people, but it's our duty to do that. We must preserve the covenant and, and the people of it. When people are, the word is contumacious, hard-hearted, rebellion, rebellious against the word of the Lord and, and, and against their faith, the church has a duty to remove them, in our case, thankfully, by excommunication. You see, here's an inward reformation that accompanies the outward cleansing of their worship. The nation, it's a mutual commitment, taking responsibility for one another to seek the Lord in true faith. That's what this covenant was. It was a solemn compact before the Lord of mutual seeking. Now, second, he shows that the covenant of God's people in this reformation When God's people do this, when we do the work of reformation and we bond ourselves together to seek the Lord, that it leads in God's blessing. Now, there are sovereign times in which God will do this more. There are sovereign times when he does it less. But the result is called by the word revival. That's what we see here. There is a revival that flows from the covenant reformation. Look at verses 14 and 15. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their hearts and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them. You know, we often pray for revival, but are we willing to do the work of reformation? Biblically, reformation, then revival. That's what we have here. And there's a compact, a seer. We're going to stop playing games. We're going to stop putting our our religion on the back burner. We're going to make Jesus Lord because he is Lord. We're going to seek him. We're going to live in the light of eternity. And that is the church in which revival strikes. God is sovereign in giving revival, but that is the pattern we see in Christian. How easily we forget that all through the Bible and all through church history, revival follows the reformation of the church and its people. Richard Pratt notes that what the Chronicler's readers are to learn, he says that it is that the wonder of Asa's joyful celebration could be theirs if they would follow his example of covenant fidelity. Covenant fidelity, the faithful preaching of his word, the obedience of his word, the implementation of his word, not outwardly, but with hearts that are really desiring him, that is what produces revival. Now, thirdly, the third feature of his covenant is the overflow of blessings that come to the people as they seek the Lord, they find him. And what happens is they come once more under the nurturing covenant care of a God who is love. He is rich in mercy. He delights in showing mercy. He's slow to anger, quick to forgive. He delights to bless us. Verse 15, for they had sworn with all their heart. They sought him with their whole desire. He was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. You see, similar blessings may be enjoyed today by revived Christian people in families, in churches, yes, in nations, When they respond to God's word and reformation and covenant renewal, they seek and find the God of whom Paul says in Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Well, the account of Asa's response, this all started with the preaching of a sermon that was sent by God, his word going forth not in vain. 
And it makes actually for exciting reading, doesn't it? Once we understand what's really going on, once we understand the historical and the redemptive achievement. But you know what's really exciting? That the whole dynamic recorded in this chapter continues in our world in the same way. God's word is proclaimed. Sinners respond with tender, faithful hearts seeking after him. And then the blessings of a revived people as they find him, those blessings spill over with great joy to other people. The generation of the Jews to whom the chronicler was writing, they got the message. They came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the city. We we learned about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's these people. And they taught the word of God. One of the interesting facts is that after the Babylonian exile, Israel never has an idolatry problem again. God's word had its effect through people like the chronicler and Ezra and and men of that kind. And they sought the Lord and they raised their children in the Lord and they carried on this work of seeking him generation after generation until through them, through their reformation, through his revival in their midst, in due time, right on schedule, the object of the gospel appeared right there in their midst, in the city of Jerusalem, the Lamb of God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Didn't God promise Asa, the Lord is with you while you are with him? If you seek him, he'll be found by you. And he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was given the name of Jesus as the angel told Joseph that he will save his people from their sins. Well, my friends, we are here assured in the words of this prophet Azariah and in the account of this chapter of Asa's covenant that if we will seek the Lord through Jesus Christ, we will find him. Are you saying, I'm trying to seek the Lord, seek the Lord through his word in faith in Jesus Christ. You will be found by him and he will forgive you of your sins. He will renew your hearts with his grace. And in his priestly reign of grace, he will offer the rest of peace to all who answer his call. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. And then when Jesus returns, we will not rest on the laurels that he's given them. What are we going to do? We're going to cast them at his feet. We'll give glory to the God who in Jesus Christ is with us forever. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Second Chronicles 15. We thank you for the message of the gospel that you save sinners that when we repent and believe, we find grace and mercy and even more than we lost in sin. And Father, give us the courage to reform according to your word and to seek you not merely in an outward show of Christian evangelicalism, but wholehearted faith seeking you in your glory. We know that we will gain everything. And above all else, you will be glorified and we will enjoy you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.